This might be, if I can speed along our last study. If not, we'll have one more, God willing, uh, next Tuesday on this uh, whole overarching theme of the Christ, the Antichrist, and Islam. Kind of sinks in with what I'm teaching on uh, Sunday morning, but you'll have to be the, the judge of that. We could begin tonight by looking at Matthew chapter 24, which is what we're using on uh, Sunday morning. Matthew chapter 24, in which the Lord Jesus Christ spoke about those who would come in His name, verse 5, saying, I'm the Christ and shall deceive many. Talks about being afflicted and killed in verse 9 and hated. And then in uh, verse 24, there shall arise false Christ, false prophets, show great signs and wonders if if possible, they would deceive the very elect. So the, past, the scriptures seem to indicate that things on earth will grow worse and worse, and that men who are deceived will continue to be deceived, many of them, and they will be the means of deceiving others. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time tonight through our Lord Jesus Christ. We lift up to you our own souls and ask you to give us an understanding, not only of your word, but a sense of the times that we live in, that we might be as lights in a world of darkness, sharing the grace of God and the love of Christ in our lives as you avail us opportunities to do so. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for cleansing us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for the blood of Christ, our substitute, our atonement, and our righteousness. We ask you to bless us this evening and enlighten us with your spirit. For the sake of Christ our Lord, we pray. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there were many, many prophecies. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you can get a pew Bible there. Many, many prophecies of the coming of Messiah, of course, but many of them, uh, Israel missed it, didn't know it, didn't see it. And I think in the day in which we're living, many people are not tuned in to what's really going on uh, today in our world. We are in a world of trouble. We have a lot of things that are now coming into us and upon us, and uh, we need to be aware of those. Now, there are only seven references in the Bible to the horrible method of execution by beheading. I'm going to tell you where they are. The first one is, you don't have to turn, we'll look at one of these. Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 through 9, is a reference there to the beheading of a heifer. 
an animal involved in the putting away of the guilt of blood from the land when a murderer had escaped. Somebody had been murdered. They couldn't find out who it was and where he was. They had a ritual that they went through which involved beheading a heifer. And men would stand there and say, we didn't see anything, we didn't hear anything, we don't know anything about it. Every man, uh, the leaders of the tribes had to do that because very rarely sometimes people would get away with that. So that's the first one. It's Deuteronomy 21. Second Samuel chapter 4, David is trying to unite the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And the two sons of Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth was the son of Saul, who had been the king, and he was the enemy of David. His own two sons beheaded him while he slept, and they brought his head to David, thinking that he would greatly honor and reward them, and instead he had them executed. He, he was trying to teach Israel the respect for those whom God had ordained to lead. I have a real problem today. When I watch television and they take the President of the United States, whether it's Biden or whether it's Trump or whoever it is, and Saturday Night Live comedians and all of that ridicule people that are leaders in this nation. And I have a problem with that because it cultivates and creates a lack of respect for authority. And that authority, of course, was given to men by, by the Lord. <laughs> and when you're going to find that when men lose respect and reverence for authority, you will find that they have lost respect and reverence for God who gave that authority. From parental authority to being a mayor or a governor or a president, whatever. The third mentioning of uh, beheading is found in Matthew chapter 14, and it's about John the Baptist. Most all of you know about John. He was beheaded while he was in prison. He was beheaded by order of Herod, and the occasion was Herod's birthday. Um, in the Bible, every time a birthday is mentioned, bad things happen. <laughs> so really, that's, uh, we talk about the birthday of Christ coming up in December. A lot of bad things happen. We try to focus on the, what we think are the good things, but the Scripture doesn't make a big deal out of that. It was almost a private birth except for some people. But John had condemned Herod for marrying his brother, Philip's wife, Herodias. And at his birthday party, the daughter of Herodias danced, and Herod promised her anything that she asked. She consulted with her mother, who hated John the Baptist because he had condemned her lifestyle. And her mother told her, go ask for the head of John the Baptist. And Herod obliged her. Now, that story is related in Matthew 14 and Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. Then in Mark, chapter 6, verse 16, in Luke 9, 9, the beheading of John the Baptist is mentioned by Herod, 
when he heard all of what Jesus was doing, he thought it might be John risen from the dead. But the reference we're interested in is Revelation chapter 20. If you want to turn over there, we'll look at that one. Revelation chapter 20, of course, is the central chapter. If we were in another subject about uh, prophecy, eschatology, it's all centered around what's called the millennium because a thousand years is mentioned for the first time and maybe the only time in Revelation chapter 20. Now, this chapter is probably one of the most difficult to understand in the Bible, but certainly in the book of Revelation. So we don't need to do too much speculating. We need to kind of center in on what we know. In the first three verses, we read that Satan is bound for a thousand years. And then verses 4, 5, and 6, the reign of saints with Christ for a thousand years. And then verses 7 through 10, the loosing of the devil and the conflict of the church with Gog and Magog. And then verses 11 through 15, the great day of judgment, often called the white throne judgment. Now you'll notice verse 4, well let's read verse 1. I saw an angel come down from heaven, Revelation 20, having the key of the bottomless pit, the key to the bottomless pit. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil. So we know when you read the book of Revelation, you read about the dragon, you know who he is, and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit, and he shut him up, and he set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years were fulfilled. And after that, he will be loosed for a little season. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now I think the significance of this is that a lot of people, not just a John the Baptist, but a lot of people apparently in this particular time were going to be beheaded. Well, we know that in history, the religion or the movement or the group that is associated with beheading is Islam. I'm sure that when John was given this revelation, he certainly did not understand how the things he saw could be possible. But if we take them literally, we know that uh, there are today, for example, 21st century governments, and I'm not just talking about Revelation 20, I'm talking about what John saw in the book of Revelation and what he wrote down for us. Many of those things, he didn't understand how they could be possible, probably didn't understand everything really that was being conveyed to him. But we know that today in the 21st century that there are governments that are now 
exploring the possibility, some I've already using, of chips to open bank accounts, uh, provide personal identity, prevent theft, chips that are embedded uh, in, your, in your hand or somewhere in your body. We now have artificial intelligence technology by which remarkable things can be done, including impersonating a person by the internet and television. Uh, many think that uh, many of the appearances of our president, Joe Biden, are not really him at all, that he's too weak to be in all the places that he's supposed to be in, and perhaps not smart enough to do all the things that he's supposed to be doing. Well, there's a, diff, there's a definite rise today of apostasy in the professing world of Christendom. There seems to be a kind of death of normal and natural discernment so that more and more people no longer know what evil is or what good is. And there is a rise of a culture in the United States and in the West, in Europe, that permits anything, any sort of lifestyle, any religion, and any so-called faith, but the faith of Christians in Jesus as the Christ. In fact, without question, we're witnessing an exponential, in my opinion, rise of evil all over the world, especially uh, the rise of violence. Now, the religion of Islam is in the center of the storm that is now sweeping over the world. And even though the teachers of Islam deny that it tolerates the murder of innocent persons and that it encourages terrorism, the facts of modern events, not to mention the facts of history, adamantly fly in the face of this denial. I mentioned to you this uh, book, which you can get. I did not get most of my information from this book, but a lot of information is in this book called The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Quran. You can pick that up. They had that one on Judaism and one on Christianity and so on. You can pick this up almost anywhere. I'm going to quote now from this book. I want to examine this idea this evening partially that is uh, that uh, uh, Islam uh, denies that they are a violent religion, even though the teachers of Islam deny that they tolerate the murder of innocent persons, that they encourage terrorism. Uh, the facts of modern events as well as history, I think, fly in the face of that denial. Now, on page 32 in that book that I just held up to you, The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Quran, the authors, and there are two of them, they write this, and I quote, Here, then, are five of the most common and potentially divisive misconceptions about the Islamic faith. Number five addresses whether or not Islam is indifferent to the shedding of innocent blood. So here's what he says. He says, misconception number five, Islam, this is a misconception that people have, they say about Islam. Quote, Islam tolerates the murder 
of innocent persons and in its modern expression encourages terrorism. So they're saying that's not true. Now this is the one, here's what I'm saying now. I'm going to continue to read what they say in this book. They say, quote, this is one of the most serious and widespread misconceptions regarding Islam. Yet the Quran, without the slightest ambiguity, declares that any Muslim who takes the life of an innocent person has perpetrated a grave offense against Allah. Now, I didn't write surah up here, S-U-R-A-H. I've already done that several times. A surah is what? What is surah? You remember what that is? That's a chapter. Okay, that's their word for chapter. There are 114 surahs or chapters in the Quran. In surah, 533, chapter 5, verse 33, this is what it says, quote, the only proper recompense, you know what a recompense is, that's a payback in like manner, for those who fight against God and his messenger, who is his messenger? Muhammad, and try to spread evil in the world is to be killed crucified, or either to have one of their hands and feet cut off from the opposite side. That means you have your left hand cut off and your right foot cut off. From the opposite side, or be sent into exile. These are to disgrace them in this life, and they will suffer great torment in the life hereafter. That's Surah chapter 5 and verse 33. The authors of this book go on to say, quote, any reference to Muslim terrorist or Islamic terrorist is therefore both illogical along the lines of Christian or Buddhist serial killer and deeply offensive to believers. Individual Muslims who commit sins involving the shed of innocent blood do so at the peril of their souls, end of quote. Now here's the first thing. Even we don't believe anybody's innocent. Christians do not believe anybody's innocent. We believe that everybody is a sinner. And that's why Christ came. He came into the world to save sinners. Judaism doesn't believe anybody's innocent. But when you look at Islam, there is a, an open door for them to, quote, shed blood because you are not innocent unless you convert to Islam. If you do not convert to Islam, you are guilty. And therefore, they are justified in your execution or anything else that they choose to do. Now, I want you to listen to this one more time now. Islam tolerates... This is one of the most serious and widespread misconceptions regarding Islam, but yet Islam says that... They may slay, uh, crucify, or send into exile anyone or cut off the hands and feet from the opposite side for anyone who does not submit to uh, uh, Allah and believe that Muhammad is his, is his uh, prophet. 
So I want you to understand that when you, when you read Islam or when you study Islam, you have to understand that they do not believe that there are any exceptions to the rule. There, are, there is no forgiveness uh, in that religion. There is no salvation in that religion. You either live to, uh, according to the will of Allah as, as revealed in the Quran, or you are, uh, you, you're not innocent. <laughs> and you're subject, if you escape this world, uh, judgment in this world, you're subject to the future. Now we looked and we began to look in Muslim eschatology, that is the last days, the prophecy, and I told you that there are three signs and those three signs are three men. I'd like to finish what we began last time. The first man who will come in the end, end of history is the Mahdi. The Mahdi. Okay. The Mahdi is a messianic deliverer who will come in the last days for the purpose of filling the earth with justice and equity, restoring the true religion, and ushering in a short golden age lasting seven years. Now all of that is according to the Quran. The son of the 11th Imam. What is an Imam? An Imam is a teacher. I think I put that up here. He's a leader or he's a teacher. The son of the 11th Imam or the 12th Imam, who will be a descendant of Muhammad, who will be an unparalleled, unequaled leader, he will arise in the world in the last days of human history to control the world, and to establish a new world order. And he is coming to slaughter all who will not worship Allah and convert to Islam. He is coming, this is all according to the Quran, he is coming to establish the world-dominating kingdom of Islam. The Mahdi, or the twelfth Imam, is called the Guided One. He is the long-awaited Savior of the world. He is the establisher of the final caliphate leaders, the destroyer of all enemies of Islam, and the world must follow him or be destroyed. They will carry on holy war, jihad. He will have an army which will follow him from nation to nation to mercilessly destroy all the enemies of Islam. His army will be marked by black flags, upon which is written in Arabic punishment. The modern Iranian army today carries black flags. He will lead his army of black flags first to Israel to slaughter all the Jews. He will then establish his rule on the Temple Mount in Israel. The Mahdi will bring wealth and happiness to those who listen and submit and everybody will love him, and nobody will say anything against him. How will he accomplish all of this? Again, I can't say this too much. I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what is in the Quran. And I noticed that in this book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Quran, they didn't discuss any of this. 
And the Mahdi is extremely important, extremely important, as are two, the other two characters. How will he accomplish all of this? Well, according to the Quran, he will make peace, a peace agreement with the Jews in Israel, a seven-year peace agreement. He will reign. Uh, his reign will last seven years, during which time he will establish the uh, religion of Islam throughout the world. He will come riding on a white horse. Now, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 6. We'll look, I'll say more about this in just a minute. Revelation 6. When Saddam Hussein was alive, all over Baghdad especially, he had murals uh, drawing pictures depicting the Mahdi with a sword to destroy all of the infidels. The Mahdi, according to the Quran, will discover hidden scriptures near the Sea of Galilee. And those hidden scriptures will be the true scriptures. All the other scriptures, especially the Christian scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures, what we call our Old and New Testament, those have been corrupted. And he will find the true scriptures hidden near the Sea of Galilee. And these hidden scriptures will be used to show the Jews and the Christians that they were wrong because their scriptures are spurious or false or erroneous writings and they've been corrupted. What do we say about the Mahdi? Well, the description of the Mahdi is precisely described in the Quran and the Sunnah. The Sunnah are the direct quotes of Muhammad, what he said and what he did. The Bible's description of the Antichrist in Revelation 6 is actually referred to by the Quran. The Quran refers to Revelation chapter 6. And I believe that any study will discover that all the details given by the Bible and the Quran match up perfectly but one of them is referring to the Antichrist, and the other one, the Quran, is referring to the Christ. In other words, the Bible's Antichrist is Islam's Christ. Now, when you read Revelation 6, I'm just going to give you a couple of things to think about here. Our Savior will return on a white horse, but can you flip over to Revelation 19? real quick and just hold open Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 19 in verse 11. Verse 11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. There's no question there that this is Christ. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no, one, no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Christ is the Word of God. That's Revelation 19 and verse 13. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, 
and with it he will smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture, verse 16, and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, there's no question there that the writer of the book of Revelation is talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. But in Revelation chapter 6, sometimes there's a disagreement. Let's look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. Now, Christ is always pictured with a sword. And a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, that looks like a counterfeit of the Christ of Revelation chapter 19, and that is, in fact, what it is. The person on the white horse in Revelation 6 is a satanic imitator of Christ. He rules, but he, because he, he has a crown, but he rules with a bow and not a sword. And he exercises dominion over the earth. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. And the results of his rule clearly show that his reign is not the reign of the Christ of Christianity. His reign brings war and famine and strife. If you read on, you'll see that. Those who read Revelation as history believe that the writer is Jesus or the apostles or perhaps the Roman emperors, but those who read Revelation as prophecy believe that the writer is the Antichrist that he is the final dictator, more terrible than all the previous ones in history, and that he will rule over men as a false, at least for us Christians, as a false messiah, and he will lead an organized rebellion against God. He will rule or lead in the pattern of Nimrod. Now, if you go back and look at Nimrod, we don't have the time this evening, Genesis chapter 10, Nimrod was the ruler over Babel before God broke up people, broke up the languages, broke up the nations. He was a hunter of men. He was offensive to the God of heaven. And it corresponds to other issues in the scriptures. Some say the 70th week of Daniel, when a dictator will confirm a covenant with the Jews. Now, the Great Tribulation, as it's called, the time of Jacob's trouble and other things, I believe is going to be centered in something that has to do very much with Islam. And many believe that if this is the initial emergence of the Antichrist in Re Revelation chapter 6, then that the four horsemen that are connected with Daniel's 70 week and the Great tribulation are also. If you look in Revelation chapter 6, verse 3, he said, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see, and they went out another horse that was red, red horse. What, did he, what does the rider of the red horse do? He takes peace from the earth. Now, peace and peace among nations and peace among men is a gift of God. It's not a natural state. The natural state is we're always warring, lusting to have power over other men. 
So this is an example of God bringing judgment through others who hate him. He did that with Israel all the time. He said, I'm going to rise up a, raise up a nation and bring them against you, and then I'll punish that nation. So you got the red horse in verses 3 and 4. You got the black horse in verses 5 and 6. And that black horse, the rider of the black horse, brings scarcity and inequity. He has scales. You need to carefully measure and ration food. There'll be a scarcity, scarcity of food, a quart of wheat. Uh, pieces, uh, prices are going to be about 12 times higher than normal. Require a day's wages to purchase a loaf of bread. And perhaps it describes a time of famine. Oil and wine for those who can afford them. Then verses 7 and 8, you have the pale horse of death. The pale horse brings death. And the Lord of heaven is still in control. He still holds the scrolls and opens the seals. And he's using the natural depravity and rebellion of men and devils to accomplish his will on earth. Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 tell us about the fifth and sixth seals. Brings forth the pleas of the martyrs, the people under the altar. Their lifeblood was poured out as an offering to God. They were slain for the word of God. And all the martyrs that were slain are mentioned here. Uh, sees people under this uh, uh, altar that cry out to God uh, to avenge their blood shed upon the earth. But they have to wait. They're told that they have to wait until God's will for his martyrs is fulfilled. You read all this yourself. Verses 12 through 17 speak to us about the great earthquake. The uh, celestial disturbances are often connected with the coming of the Messiah. As per Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Zephaniah says this, chapter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near in haste greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty men shall cry bitterly. The day is a day of wrath. It is a day of trouble and distress. It is a day of wasteness and desolation. It is a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. Joel chapter 2, which is quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2, which is not all fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. Verse 10, Joel chapter 2, verse 10, The earth shall quake, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, the stars shall withdraw their shining, the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. His camp is very great, he's strong, he executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and terrible, who can abide it? So all of this talks about judgment coming upon the earth. Now, it's best to interpret, I think, things rather than trying to wax eloquent and get poetic about it. It's basically best to try to see them as they really are presented, although we may not know the real meaning of these things. But the wrath of the Lamb is coming, the Scripture says, to this world. All right, now, so you got the Mahdi. All that's under the Mahdi. Now, the second sign for the coming of the end is the second person, and who would that be? 
Well, that would be Jesus. You see, in the Quran, Jesus is mentioned. But you remember I told you two studies ago that there are other Jesuses. There's another gospel, there's another spirit, and there is another Jesus. So the Jesus of the Quran is not the Jesus of Scripture. So let me say this about the Jesus of the Quran. Jesus is not the Mahdi, and the Mahdi is not Jesus. Jesus is coming back. This is all according to the Quran. He's coming back, but he's not coming to rule the world. He's coming to assist the Mahdi. The Jesus of Islam, of course, is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's going to come back as a radical Muslim. He's going to arrive near Damascus. He's going to come down from the heavens holding the wings of two angels. He's going to come back to meet the gathering army of the Mahdi in the east. He's going to acknowledge the Mahdi as his Lord and pray to him. He's going to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. He's going to worship Allah and lead all Christians who will follow him to reject their notion that he's divine. Now, have you ever heard this term? I'm, I'm giving you a lot of, I have, I think I've gone a little slower in the previous studies, but have you ever heard this term here? Now, I would pronounce that shirk. Do you know what a shirk is in Islam? That's anybody or anything that claims to be God. This is the worst, of, the worst situation for anybody. Anybody claims to be God. Did Jesus claim to be God? In John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. When he said that, they picked up stones. He said, I've done a lot of good works. For which of those good works do you stone me? They said, it's right in your Bible. We don't stone you for any good work. But you being a man, make yourself God. So they cannot, Islam cannot ever accept Jesus as we do because that would make him a shirk. Okay? When he comes back, he will shatter crosses. He's going to destroy the church, the symbol of Christ who died for his people. He's going to kill pigs. That refers to any person who is not an adherent, not a believer, not a convert to Islam. He will kill, listen to this now, he will kill the Islamic Antichrist. Now we're talking about the Jesus of the Quran. When he comes back, he's going to kill the Islamic Antichrist. Now who is the Islamic Antichrist? Well, that would be our Jesus. You see, their, their Jesus is going to kill the one that we believe is the true Messiah. And he's going to kill the Islamic Antichrist, and then he's going to die, and he's going to be buried next to Muhammad, and he's going to marry, and he's going to have children. Now, compare, we may have to have one more study. I think I've moved too rapidly this evening. Compare what the Islamic Christ does, if you read Revelation 13, 16, 19, and 20, and compare what the Islamic Christ does 
to the false prophet of Revelation 13, 16, 19, and 20. You're going to see that, that those passages talk about a false prophet that comes up out of the earth whom our Lord will destroy being in league with the Antichrist. The Mahdi is the exact equivalent to the Antichrist. So the Jesus of Islam is the exact equivalent of the beast in the book of Revelation who serves the Antichrist. The Jesus of Islam helps the Mahdi in establishing Islam in the earth. He's the Mahdi's executioner. He's the one that would carry out things for him, the enforcer for the Mahdi. And the Jesus of Islam is the one who kills their Antichrist, who is our Christ, our Savior, the Son of God. That's confusing, isn't it? Their Christ, their Savior, fits exactly our Antichrist. And our Christ is their Antichrist. All right, now the third sign is the Dajjal, the Dajjal, and that's the Muslim Antichrist. He's the great deceiver. He comes to earth on a mule. He's blind in one eye. He's an infidel. He's a false miracle worker. He claims in the Quran, he claims to be Jesus. He claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be God in the flesh. And he will try to stop the Mahdi and the Jesus of Islam, but he will be slaughtered by the Mahdi and by the Jesus of Islam. In other words, the Muslim Jesus will kill their false Jesus, which is our Savior, our Jesus, and establish Islam as the world religion. Isn't that confusing? That is so very confusing. And here's what makes it even more so, as I've mentioned several times, they actually quote from the Christian Bible. They quote from the Christian Bible, especially in Revelation chapter 6. And that person in Revelation chapter 6 that we believe is the Antichrist, that is their Christ, who will come and destroy the one who says that he is the Christ, who says he is the Messiah, who says he is the Son of God. I hope that you can get a hold of some of this. I'm going to put some of this in notes and hand them out to you so that maybe you can get a better understanding of it. If you get an opportunity and you want to buy this book somewhere, but it's like I say, it's not going to tell you anything about eschatological issues, not going to tell you anything much about the Mahdi, and about the Christ of Islam is going to bypass all that because that involves lots of violence, lots of bloodshed. Doesn't the scripture say, let's read one passage before we break up this evening. Matthew chapter 24, again. Matthew chapter 24. He talks about false prophets. He talks about false Christ. And he says in Matthew 24, this is how bad things will get. Matthew 24, verse 22. 
except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. The Lord Jesus says that God the Father is going to shorten those days to prevent everybody from being destroyed. There shall arise false Christ, false prophets. They'll show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. Verse 24. Now, my friends, I don't have any insight about these things more than what I've told you. I don't have proof of any of this. But to me, looking at the rise of Islam, I told you two or three studies ago that when communism fell, it opened the floodgates of Islam. All of those nations that were part of the Soviet Union were heavily populated with Islam, but communism held them down. When, it, when communism fell, then that opened the floodgates. We were talking earlier tonight before we had our Bible study about the 732, 732 A.D., the battle of Charles Martel, who turned back Islam, 732. If he hadn't, if he hadn't won that battle, Islam would have dominated all of Europe way back then. It seems to me impossible to think that we're going to get much further in the world without a huge impact and role-playing part of Islam in this world. Yes, sir. 